That song was chosen, certainly intentionally, for us to consider again this morning from the Word of God, the revelation of Himself, how holy He truly is. Please take your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20, and we'll start reading today in in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Exodus 20, 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and a sacrifice on it, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. So we come back to Exodus 20, and we've spent the last two weeks going through God's dictation of the Ten Commandments. The law of God summed up here in Ten Commandments to his people, given to Moses. And of course, Jesus summarized it as being this, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love neighbor as we love ourself. These two loves can be distinguished, Jesus distinguished between them, but they cannot be separated. They cannot be separated from one another because loving God produces naturally love for neighbor, and to love neighbor is evidence that we love God. So yes, they are two ideas, two expressions of love, but they cannot be found in isolation. Now imagine with me, as we come to uh, verse 18 of Exodus 20, the camera zooms out from God's meeting with Moses and the giving of the Ten Commandments, and it pans over to the people. What is the experience of the people? The people are there at the base of the mountain, And they've viewed, they're seeing this phenomenal divine intervention into human history and revelation from God as he speaks. Let's review the scene. Of course, it's described for us back in chapter 19. The people are to wash their clothes, to prepare themselves, to sanctify themselves, and get ready for God is coming to meet with them. They can't join Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai, because they haven't been invited. Only Moses has been invited to meet with God on the mountain. And God said, if they did, if they tried 
God would break out against them. If anyone even touched the mountain, they were to be put to death, shot by an arrow or stoned. This, of course, we recognize as a theophany. It is God meeting with his people, manifesting his presence, showing himself in an illustration of what 19, chapter 19 tells us is thick clouds, lightning, thunder, fire, smoke, all natural occurrences that certainly were not unfamiliar. All of us have seen fire and smoke. All of us have, have seen lightning and heard thunder and seen dark clouds. But in this instance, God is using all these natural occurrences in a supernatural way to engulf the mountain and to display his glory and his holiness. Enter an earthquake. The mountain itself, the Bible tells us, is trembling, shaking. No doubt, as the people are around observing this, all this noise, all this display, babies are crying. Small children are crying. There's a trumpet blasting from somewhere in this electrical firestorm, a trumpet now that is blasting louder and louder and louder until God speaks with the sound of thunder. You imagine this sight, and you thought your family gathering at Christmas was a racket. It's a lot of stimulation, and it's no mistake. It's not by mistake. God is getting their attention. God is making his appearance and his visitation with his people, undeniable. His power and his holiness engages their senses so that they don't soon forget who he is and the law that he's given them. So they don't take him lightly and disregard him. In essence, he was making them appropriately fearful. Appropriately fearful. And that's what we're going to be largely talking about today, the fear of God Two points for us, because there are two elements that we see in this text, the fear of God and the favor of God, the blessing and the goodness of God to his people. And we'll see both of them individually, but also their relationship with one another because they go hand in hand. So let's look at uh, verses 18 and 19 once again. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Okay, so the people see this overwhelming, overwhelming display of God. And it's, it's not an occasion where they just grabbed their lawn chairs and their popcorn as if they were enjoying a fireworks display. This is something entirely different. They were terrified because it was terrifying. It was entirely reasonable and rational for them to be afraid. And so they exhibited what I'm calling a rational fear. The fear of God is a rational fear. It makes sense. It's understandable. It's reasonable that when someone encounters the God of creation, the God of the Bible, the God who rules over the universe, that the reaction would be naturally one of fear. Now, there are fears that are rational fears, and there are fears that are irrational fears. 
One example of an irrational fear, one that really doesn't make sense, there's no substance to it, is that of a child who is afraid of the dark. And most of you parents, no doubt, have been there. Daddy, I'm afraid of the dark. Well, let me solve this problem for you. The dark is just like the light, but you can't see anything. Nothing's changed. Okay, now go to sleep. Okay, and we walk away. But I'm still scared. Okay, and then we wander back and, and try another angle, another way to try to help them to see that there's nothing really to be afraid of in the dark. It's just the same as when there's light. You just, you can't see anything. And it's good because you're supposed to go to sleep. It's for your rest. Okay? But, of course, they're not, like, thinking a, a rational, logical process, you know, a two- or three-year-old. They're just scared. Okay? So that's irrational. Another irrational fear might be a fear that my poor wife exhibits when I'm driving and the roads are less than perfect. For some reason, she just always thinks that I'm driving too fast. And I try to reassure her, honey, come on. How long have I been driving? Have I ever put you in danger? It's irrational to be afraid. <laughs> but still, she's clutching and pressing her imaginary brake pedal and uh, telling me to slow down, which is probably a good gift of God to me. And then we have some examples of obviously rational fears. For instance... Perhaps you're out in the Wild West, up in the mountains, and you encounter a sow grizzly bear with her cubs. Maybe you find yourself hiking and you're between her and her cubs. There is rational fear that should lead you to a response, right? It's rational to be afraid when there's a tornado barreling toward your house. You're going to take it seriously and take action. And it is rational to fear a holy God who transcends you in every way. Israel encountered this holy, transcendent God. And he transcended them, they recognized, in at least two ways. First of all, he transcended them as creatures. Now this is a simple designation for us. Is there anything more simple and more helpful for our perspective as we walk through this life to recognize that God is the creator and I am his creature. Therefore, naturally, I am beneath him. I am to submit to him. He determines my time and place and being, my circumstances, the number of my days. He is the creator and I am the creature. He's the eternal self-existent one. We are brought into existence by him. We have no power over him, no right to tell him what to do or what not to do. We have no right to question his plans. Can what is made say to its maker, why have you made me this way? It's inappropriate. It's not our place. His power as creator and Lord of the universe was on display and Israel couldn't deny it as he easily manipulated the natural world to illustrate his powerful presence. So he transcended them as creator over creature, but he also transcended them as one who is pure and perfect and sinless, in contrast with people who are sinful. So the people here have what we could call an Isaiah moment. They have a moment where they have a recognition of the great gulf, the great chasm that exists between holy God, righteous God, and sinful people. 
Remember Isaiah, when he's given a vision of the throne of God, he enters the room and he sees the, the foundations of the room, of the threshold are trembling. The room is filled with smoke, a common description of the presence of God and the holiness of God. You have the seraphim, these, these angelic beings who are worshiping him, praising him, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what does Isaiah recognize? Immediately, he recognizes the distinction between this amazing, pure, and perfect, transcendent God and his creature, his, his creaturely nature, and especially the fact that he's a sinful creature. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The people have a similar experience. Whether they have the same spoken confession or not, they recognize the difference and the chasm, the space between them and God. God is morally perfect, but the people were not. And so there couldn't have been a greater contrast. Isaiah would later say in Chapter 59, verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is the reality of sinful creatures with their sinless creator. They were entirely insufficient to be near God, and they recognized it. There was even this physical separation to illustrate that moral separation, this barrier. Set a limit, God said, around the mountain, and if anyone crosses it, he'll be put to death. This terrifying God whose gaze pierces human flesh to see the heart of man was now demanding obedience to his law, the law that flows from his holiness. See, people knew they didn't measure up. They knew they didn't meet his standards. Can you consider them? Put yourself in their shoes as they hear that law for the first time. You ever, if you played the game, never have I ever, you hold your fingers up and someone go, you take turns saying, well, I've never done this. And if you've done it, you put a finger down. Okay, so if, let's imagine they played that game with, with the Lord. Probably wasn't a fun game because of the results. But as the laws come out, well, no other gods before me. Ooh, I, I think I've probably broken that one. No idols, no graven images. Ooh, ooh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Oh, don't dishonor your parents. Ooh, don't lie and bear false witness. And by the end, you know, nobody's, mom and dad aren't going to be impressed with that report card, okay? And so they understood. They understood they didn't meet God's demands. They didn't measure up to his standard. And so they are afraid Therefore, two times in verse 18 and verse 21, the Bible says that the people stood far off, far away, as if to say, we can't be near this God, it's too dangerous. And look at what they told Moses in verse 19, you can speak to us and we will listen. Now, pause there for just a moment. Are they actually going to listen? I mean, I have real questions about that. When you speak to us, we'll listen. Okay, we'll see. But you can speak to us, Moses. We're okay with you speaking to us, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses felt safe to them because he was a creature like them. 
and he was a sinner like them. But they knew that God was not safe. In their condition before him as sinful lawbreakers, transgressors, disregarding his worth and his authority and his glory, they couldn't stand before him. He was not safe. And I want you to know, friends, that God is not safe. Sometimes we domesticate him. We treat him as though he's of very little consequence. But he's not small and he's not inconsequential. He's not mocked. He will execute justice. He's not domestic. He's not a tame lion. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is where the fear of the Lord begins for all of us in recognizing his posture toward us as sinners. This is our position. From the very moment we are born, our position is this. We are under fearful expectation of judgment by the holy God. Why? Well, just for that reason. He is holy. We are unholy. He is just. We are unjust. He is righteous. We are unrighteous. He's worthy of all our worship and adoration. And we don't even want to have him in our thoughts. We don't like having God in our mind. We want him out of our mind so we can worship and serve the creature rather than the creator and do our own thing. In sin, we are his adversaries. And he is our judge. And the just judge will pour out his wrath against his adversaries adversaries for eternity. A couple of examples that show us what God is like toward his enemies, toward rebels who continue to reject him and his authority and his glory. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Nahum 1.6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Revelation 6, when he opened the sixth seal, judgment is coming. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne." from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the position of God towards sinners and the fearful expectation of sinners who are not absolved of their guilt. And this is all of our place at the beginning of our life. This is what we're born into. Judgment is coming for sinners. And that is a fearful thing. That is a rational fear. 
course, not everyone exhibits this rational fear to their peril. It's like those who, who disregard the warning or the order to evacuate an area, perhaps for a hurricane, and then they find out later the mistake they've made, either by losing their life in the damage of the storm or the floodwaters that, that come, or if they're fortunate, you see them on national television being rescued from the roof by helicopter or boat. The masses take this position toward God. Romans 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. In claiming to be wise, they become fools. In claiming to be rational, they become irrational. Yes, some try to rationalize God away so they don't have to deal with him. Others see God not as he is, but someone who is, who is impotent or inconsequential. Therefore, they ignore him. God will not be mocked. His anger burns with intensity against his enemies and his wrath awaits them. Israel saw this God and they were afraid that if they were in his presence, they would be eradicated by his holiness. And because of their sin, they deserved it. But God had something else in mind. A different kind of fear, what I'm calling a productive fear. Let's read verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Okay, Moses, don't be afraid. God wants you to be afraid. Don't fear, fear. Moses, maybe you spent a little bit too much time in the sun. Time to come in. Okay, so how do we understand this? What, what, is, what is the fear that we're not supposed to have? What is the fear that God's people are supposed to have? Well, first, what are the people afraid of here? What are they afraid of? Why are they trembling? They're afraid they're going to die. But Moses explains that's not what's happening here. God has not come to kill you. In fact, he's come to test you. Now, when we think of God testing people, uh, we usually think of a test as something that takes place after the education has been accomplished. It's something to see if you've actually learned anything, okay? And uh, we should maybe, in this instance, it might be more helpful to think of a test as just part of the education. God is training and instructing his people by a test to produce in them the fear that they're supposed to have, the right kind of fear. Well, what is the right kind of fear? Let's consider it's the kind of fear that actually comes alongside faith and alongside love in relationship with God and draws us and guides us into obedience and worship. That's the kind of fear that we should have. Here's an example. Remember Abraham. God also tested him. He asked him to give up his son Isaac as an offering, as a sacrifice, and he obeys. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 22 why he obeys. The angel comes and says from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. So the fear of God that we ought to have is the fear that Abraham exhibits here, the fear that drives us to obey, 
the fear that guides us into obedience and worship. Another example for us is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, instruction for the church. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Now, we don't always know how to take that. I'm, I'm supposed to be afraid. God saved me, so there's no more judgment. And now the salvation, he's working in me. I'm working out. But I'm supposed to be afraid and tremble. What does that mean? Okay. It is a fear that is an awe and a reverence for the holy God who is the just judge but has saved you from his judgment. He's still just as fearful as he always was, but now in relationship with him, his disposition toward you is love and grace and favor. And so now the fear that you have is an appreciation, a reverence, an awe that guides us to obey. And that's exactly what, what Moses says in verse 20. The fear that you should have before you always is so that you may not sin. So the simple truth is, when we sin, it's because we do not fear God the way we ought to. We disregard him. We treat him as small and inconsequential. So this fear is a productive fear. Not a fearful expectation of wrath, but awe and reverence in light of the salvation God is working for us. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we're not afraid of God. We're not afraid of God as though we're facing his judgment, but we respect him. We respect him like we respect an authority and authority and law enforcement. Okay? And not only just law enforcement with no relationship to us, but one who has brought us into relationship with himself, even though we don't deserve it. So we no longer experiencing, uh, experience a tormenting fear as God's adversaries, but a filial fear as God's children that guides us to obey. That's how it's productive. This is the lesson that God was trying to teach his people. God didn't want them to have a fear that would drive them away from him so they would run and hide and tremble in guilt and shame and ultimately die in guilt, not coming to him in obedience and faith and worship. God wants them to have a fear that draws them in to himself. Now, this fear that God is instilling in his people is surrounded. It's, it's encompassed by the favor of God. You can see how this is a good thing. That God would produce in us an emotion, a motive, a response, a perspective that would actually draw us to himself. That is a gift of grace. So I hope that you don't have a false dichotomy because we have two points here, fear and favor. They're not opposed to each other. They actually work together. Fear is a gracious gift that guides God's people into right relationship with him. We also clearly see God fulfilling his part in the covenant that he's made with his people to make them his people and to be their God with two other means. That is a mediator and an avenue for worship. So let's look at the mediator. 
We've already seen Moses fulfilling this role as mediator, acting as a go-between between God and the people. And, and let's revisit the people. They're trembling. They're afraid. They're standing far off. Now look at verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So even though the people have separated themselves from the presence of God, Moses draws near. This, no doubt, is where the lyrics from one of our favorite hymns, Holy, 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 comes from. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. And that is true. Our sin separates us from seeing the beauty and the glory of God. God is hidden from sinners. But God mercifully provided a mediator, one who could go between them and himself, one who could approach God without being vaporized, without being stoned or shot by an arrow. God gave them someone who could bring his words to them and take their needs and represent them before God. And so that, of course, is Moses. He's an intercessor for the people. God shows them his covenant favor by giving them this intercessor, this mediator. But he also continues to pour out his favor on his people by instructing them for proper worship. Now, do you think, think about that? Do we consider God's instructions, God's laws for how we are to worship as a good gift of grace. We should, because to worship in any other way would be to our shame and to our peril. God invites his people to worship him, but not to worship him in any way. Let's continue reading then in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, or gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Okay, so I should note this for you, that we are entering what um, a new literary section. There's a new demarcation here from verse 22 of chapter 20 through chapter 23, verse 33, is what's called the Book of the Covenant. It's the covenant code. And it's simply an expansion of the law of God for uh, directing his people's conduct. And so now we see these laws about altars, laws for worship. How will the people worship God? And so just as God wanted his people to have a particular kind of fear, he wants them to also have a particular kind of worship. Remember Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons? Priests who offered to God a strange fire, what God calls a strange fire, unauthorized incense or fire. And the reality is that they worshiped God in a way that God had not instructed. And what was the result? They died on the spot. Right worship is essential to God. What God is saying is, I am making a way for you to come to me, but on my terms. In 
verse 22 and uh, 23, we see essentially a, a, a repetition of the first and second commandments. You will have no other gods before me. You will have no idols, no graven images. Uh, and he says, for this reason, verse 22, I have spoken with you. I have talked to you from heaven. You've seen the manifestation of my presence, but you have not seen my form. So don't try to recreate some kind of you know, fetishized image to represent me. That's not what I look like. And of course, the problem with that always is that we start to worship and, and idolize the object instead of God himself. So he doesn't want these idols, even if they're made of precious metals. The second thing we should notice is that there must be an altar for the people's worship. But maybe not an altar like we would expect. Of course, this is necessary for sacrifices. He says, for the sacrifice of your burnt offering which would be intended for the covering of sin, atonement is the idea, and for the celebration of communion with God, a peace offering. Okay? And so there must be this altar for your sacrifices, but it's an altar simply of dirt or stone. Just scrape together some dirt or some stones and make me a simple, plain altar. Why? Why this seemingly odd instruction for such a simple and an elementary altar. Well, for one thing, they're temporary altars. They're still nomads. They're still wandering through the wilderness. And so they'll be building these periodically. And it doesn't make sense to spend a lot of time or effort on something extravagant while they're still moving. Also, God says in verse 26, no steps. This altar shall not have steps so that you go up to the altar Again, not extravagant, but also there's just some uh, common sense understanding here. There's a, there's a really basic and simple reason why God doesn't want there to be steps. And he continues and really gives us the answer. So that your nakedness be not exposed. You can imagine a priest in a garment like a robe if he's going up the steps to the altar to perform you know, the sacrifice and maybe there's a breeze or there's people standing below the steps, uh, it could be obscene, right? And so, you know, it, the reason is just very simple. It's common sense, propriety. Because nobody ever said, well, at least none of God's people ever said, boy, there's just nothing that gets my heart in the right place for worship, like some indecent exposure, right? Nobody said that. So it's just very basic. This is, this is uh, common sense. And later on, God would give um, instructions for a linen undergarment for the priests when there were altars with steps. But also, you know, this comes to mind, why nakedness is such a problem. Well, for one thing, the pagans used nakedness in their rituals, and it was inappropriate. And we have to go back to the fact that God himself covered Adam and Eve. God gave them clothing to cover their shame, the shame of their nakedness, which wasn't a problem before sin. I was talking to someone, an acquaintance at one point, and he was, for some reason, the conversation was, was about changing in a public setting, in a mixed setting, and he, say, he said, well, I'm just not a very private person. And I thought to myself, I don't think that's the issue. I don't think just because you have this instinct or impulse that you don't really care that's really not the problem. God covered Adam and Eve to cover their shame 
in their nakedness. And they were married. They were husband and wife. And as far as we know, they were the only two people on earth at the time. So that seems like a pretty strong argument that God cares about this exposure. And so he gives them a rule. Another thing we need to see is that the people were not supposed to hew or cut or shape the stones for the construction of the altar. Why? Why couldn't they? Wouldn't it be easier to build? Wouldn't it look nicer if we cut the stones so that they stacked? He says, don't do that. You'll profane it. You'll defile it. How should we understand this? How would the people defile the stones used for the altar by cutting the edges off so they would stack? Well, for one thing, God made the stones, okay? And they're fine just the way they are. We don't need to try to make something more fit for use in worship if God has made it and instructed it. It's just fine as it is. But also, what good thing, what good design of God that he's given to us from the beginning have we not corrupted and not distorted and defiled because of our depravity? Marriage, sex, stewardship of body, money, stewardship of creation, all of these things, every good thing God gives to us, all of his good designs, we've found hundreds of ways to get wrong. And so God knows that that's a problem that we have. So I wonder for us, as we think about our worship today, we don't have these same standards that the people had under the Old Covenant. Yet, are we trying to make worship better, more appropriate, more acceptable to God with our stuff, with our preferences and opinions? not saying we need a plain building with no decor and it should be as, as meager as possible. However, what do we think we have to have for a good worship experience? I have to have these songs. I have to have these instruments. I have to have this beautiful building. I have to have these symbols, this decoration, this service order, this sermon length, etc., 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 We have all these preferences that are consumer preferences, and I don't think that's the point. Because worship is not about us. Do these things make our worship better? Do they make God more pleased with the worship that we give? Or are we just more pleased as consumers? We have to be careful that worship doesn't become about us. A preacher said one time that after a sermon, he talked to to a congregant, and the That congregant said, well, you know, I didn't really care for the worship service this morning, probably referring to the songs. And this preacher wisely, but hopefully gently said, well, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. I hope that person learned a valuable lesson and, you know, was appropriately humbled and thoughtful about that. We aren't worshiping us. Worship is for God, so he gets to define it. He gets to tell us what's necessary, what's essential, how he is to be worshipped. It's about him. If we're not careful, the object that was supposed to aid and facilitate our worship becomes the object we worship, an idol. Look at what God says in verse 26. It's not your altar, it's my altar. 
in these places of worship, I will come to you. I will bless you. I will cause my name to be remembered. It's not about you. It's about me. We have to remember that worship is always a response. God always initiates relationship. God always initiates by forgiving, by giving mercy and grace, drawing us and calling us to himself, and he sets the terms for how we are to respond. Worship is the effect of God's causing. So what will guide us into taking God seriously and worshiping him in obedience on his terms? Proper fear. The fear of God will guide us into proper worship. So fear of God, I hope we've seen, fear of God is wise. Fear of God is good. It's reasonable and rational and productive. But how will it be productive for us? As the church, I think at times we miss the God that first stood against us. That's all far away, far in the past. We don't see God as being that way anymore. God is just safe to us. God is inconsequential. God doesn't really care much about what we do because, hey, we're forgiven. If we miss the holiness of God and his fiery wrath kindled against sin, we won't really understand what we're to be saved from and we really won't be that impressed with our salvation. We need to know God as he's revealed himself. And we may have the goal of just emphasizing his love. Oh, God is love. He just wants to welcome you with open arms. And that's true. But God didn't stop being first the judge who punishes sin. And if we don't first know the seriousness of sin and the justice it deserves, we actually diminish his love. His love is great because of how unlovely we were. When was the last time we trembled at the presence of God? Have we ever had this view of God, this awe and fear and respect for holy God? I don't want us to fear him as though we were still under his wrath. Some of us may struggle with that. That be, may be more our propensity to fear God and, and think, oh, I have to wash my garments and I have to clean myself up so that I'm acceptable to him. That's not the gospel. I don't want you to fear his wrath if you're a Christian. But God didn't save us so we could domesticate him and not take him seriously to disregard him, to treat him trivially as though he's of little priority or consequence. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God, church, saved people, is a consuming fire. Yes, we have intimate relationship with him through Christ, but not careless, not thoughtless.
we haven't seen that stunning, frightening display on the mountain that the people of God saw then. But God hasn't changed. That is still the same God that exists today and rules over us. He's still a consuming fire. He's still just as holy and as powerful and as dangerous for sinners today. He will always be the righteous judge. And it will always be true for us Christians that if we were to stand on our own merit, we would be guilty and condemned. You may remember the attack during the Waukesha Christmas Parade in 2021. A man drove his vehicle, an SUV, through the crowd of people, killing six and injuring 62 others. Perhaps you saw some of the trial as well. He uh, was on trial before a judge who was actually on the ballot for the state Supreme Court primary. And he decided to represent himself. He was both the defendant and his uh, legal defense. And as he represented himself, he presented pseudo-legal arguments and really a lot of, exhibited a lot of ridiculous behavior, a disregard for the court, a disrespect for the judge, and was removed from the courtroom multiple times. And then he was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, plus an additional 763 years and three months. He got his just sentence. But he tried to represent himself. What hope did he have to try to plead with the judge to try to get his sentence removed. The judge knew he was guilty. He knew he was guilty. And he was woefully insufficient and inadequate to represent himself before the judge and absolve himself of guilt. How would we expect to stand before the righteous judge, the holy God of the universe, who knows all things, who sees our hearts as they are, and represent ourselves, what hope would we have to remove our guilty verdict and the just sentencing? We don't have the credentials. We can't finagle our way out. We're obviously guilty. So we need someone to represent us. And if that's true for us now, and it will always be true for us, that we need a mediator, an intercessor, someone who can change our verdict and remove our sentence. God gave Moses to Israel, but God gave us a better mediator. God gave us his own son, the Messiah, the Christ. And unlike Moses and unlike us, he was sinless. He was pure and righteous and holy like God because he was God. God gave us one who was able to enter into the darkness that concealed him from us. He was able to enter by his own merit because he obeyed all the laws God gave. God gave us a mediator who could atone for our sins with his own blood on the altar, the once and for all sacrifice who is acceptable and worthy to atone for human sin because the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. God gave us one who could change our guilty verdict to innocent and our death sentence to everlasting life. And God gave us a mediator who could bring us with him into the presence of God. 
We no longer have a fear of judgment, church, that drives us away, but a healthy fear that respects and reveres and loves and believes God that guides us into obedience and right relationship and worship so that we can enjoy and love him forever. Because God for us, because of our great mediator, is no longer our adversary, but our redeemer. And that's an amazing reality. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you're so kind to us. Lord, I pray that you would do what we cannot do to instruct us, to teach us, to give us an understanding that pierces our hearts, that overwhelms us with the reality of your greatness, your holiness and your beauty, your righteousness and your justice, how far from us you are, how far above us and high above us are your ways and your thoughts and your being. Lord, we will never deserve your favor. We will never deserve to have relationship with you, to enjoy you in worship, to enjoy you for eternity with the eternal life that you've given to us because your son took our death. Father, impact us with this truth so that we might walk away changed as we've beheld your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.